Welcome to Where Math Happens. I'm David. I'm Candace. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss current hot topics in the world of education and mathematics. In today's episode, we're going to focus on an article by Andrew Biorga titled, How to Turn Your Math Classroom into a Thinking Classroom. You can find this article on Edutopia, but we also have it linked in our podcast description online. So Andrew first brings up in his article, Candice, um, just traditional math classrooms and how they've mm-hmm. become the default approach to learning. And we've probably heard this term before, though, like I do, we do, you do. Tried it myself. Yeah, of course. And he says it made it did make sense in many cases, particularly when difficult concepts needed to be addressed in like a short window of time. Mm-hmm. Teachers are telling kids all of the information they need. And then we're compressing all of that because of bell schedules and then holiday breaks and summer vacation. And so it's being used too frequently is what he's saying. And it's just, it looks like it's inhibited students to even attempt to do higher learning tasks in the classroom. And just lately, it seems like there's been this, this shift. Right. Um, instead of students, we, we're finding out students um, might not know as much as we thought they knew and that they're just mimicking their teachers, which obviously is just like too much rote work. And they've really been missing out on some challenging, um, sometimes even confusing uh, tasks and things Mm -hmm. are starting to shift. And that word mimic, right? Like that's like hitting home and I'm reflecting back on my students. How many were doing the math because they understood it and had that conceptual knowledge Mm -hmm. versus how many were just mimicking what I did and not really taking the time to learn. Um, And so in this article, Andrew really refers a lot to Peter, and I may mess this up, Peter Lilladal. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) His book called Building Thinking Classrooms. So we'll see a lot of that in here. And Peter says that, Today, by and large, students are spending most of their class time not thinking. Yeah, which means because of that. They're not learning. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have I just had this conversation with a teacher yesterday where she was like, look, I'm trying to build a thinking classroom, but my students are sitting there looking at me and waiting for me to give them the answers and they're not willing Mm -hmm. to push through the challenge that we're giving them. They haven't had to. Yeah, exactly. So the question then is, she just asked me, I say, well, what do I do to help push them through that? And students are so smart. They're using that as like a coping strategy. Like they know if they wait for teachers they'll step in and do all the, the work for them, the heavy lifting. And Especially because teachers hate the silence. So if yeah. they sit there long enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> teachers will then jump in. Yeah. So um, Peter has some classroom approaches that he says you can just tweak, reorganize, however we want to word that, that'll help build these thinking classrooms. And one of them is to start with hard puzzles and problems that push the kids to their limits. So you're going to start classes with that. I love these rich tasks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Confront the fundamental passivity of classroom seating. And listen Mm -hmm. to that. The fundamental passivity Passivity. of classroom seating. So I I can't wait till we dive in a little bit more on what that means. Yeah, me too. 
Um, and then finally, using highly structured group activities to promote discussion, peer review, and I can't say this word, I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you say it? Iterative thinking. Thank you, Iterative thank you. Thinking. <laughs> so we're gonna dive deeper into that. Yeah, let's do it. So instead of starting a lesson with direct instruction, um, Peter suggests giving students thinking tasks that they can work on. Ideally, he wants them working on these tasks in groups. Okay. They're highly engaging. And many times they're not even like a curricular task focused on the skill of the math lesson of the week or anything like that. Um, but I think the purpose of the, these tasks is to motivate them and get them just into the mindset of not the math mindset, but just like the, the, the mindset of being challenged. Um, mm -hmm. And as the school year progresses, they'll become more accustomed to this mindset and they start transitioning that mindset into their tasks directly related to their curriculum. And this kind of, if we go back to the beginning of the article where they're saying everyone does, I do, we do, you do, yeah. this is kind of starting off with we do first. Yeah. And what does that look like before we get to the, I'm going to do all the work yeah. for you. So, so I like that. I, I, I love it. And one thing that Peter suggested was, listen, don't start off with the deepest, most mostest thinking tasks that you have that maybe students are going to really struggle with. Yeah. You want to ease them in. So you're going to give them um, maybe a lighter thinking task in the beginning, and sure. then you're going to keep going deeper and deeper progresses. And I liken that to like if you're going to prep for a marathon, right? You're not going to jump in and run 26 yeah. miles the yeah. first day. That's, exact, that's a good analogy. Yeah, you have to build that stamina up. So you're going to run maybe half a mile and then you're going to run mm. a mile and then you're going to keep going. Because remember, it's about building that thinking, not necessarily about that conceptual knowledge at first yeah. or that, con not conceptual, but that content knowledge at first. We're going to get there but it's about building up that stamina. And we want our students thinking for longer periods of time, but as we know, they can be quick to quit because yes. of some of those coping strategies. And so these types of thinking tasks can really lead them to work longer and think deeper, especially if they're collaborating with their peers. So I like what you're saying here about the, the stamina, building up that stamina and the analogy of running a marathon. Yeah. And so if you are a teacher out there and you're like, Candace, this is great, but where am I going to find these? Well, they are mm -hmm. all over the internet, but Peter, if you go to his site, he also has a whole list of what he calls good problems that okay. you can um, go to that'll help build that thinking. Great. There's lots of rich tasks out there, I'm sure. David, another approach that he says that you can reorganize or tweak or change a little bit is randomized group work, right? So a lot of us, we are intentionally grouping our students to work together. And even sure. a lot of times it's even based on skill level. We want a oh. high and a low together or yeah. we want this low group. And then when we want to be really wild, we say, okay, you choose your group. And we know that usually doesn't go well at all. So he says, if you randomly, if you randomly choose the groups your students work in, those groups tend to be more effective and the students are more likely to contribute in these random groups. And I thought that was really interesting that they'd yeah. be more willing to do that. In fact, he says, 
when you randomize like that, it helps break down those social barriers. So maybe students they wouldn't normally want to work with, or I, I shouldn't say that. want, yeah. but <laughs> choose to that. work with. Yeah. Um, it increases their knowledge mobility, so they become more flexible with their thinking. I like that. It reduces stress because they know they're not trying to impress everyone. It was a random mm. group. Um, and they actually get even more excited to work with students they maybe wouldn't have been working with sure. had they I, had I a choice. Sure, I can see that because the opposite end of that is when students are just sitting down in their chairs and not engaging with anybody, you just probably feel anonymous. And so they just disengage and they're just sitting there and they're not learning. And so I see how like getting them standing up and getting to these surfaces and working with their groups can be a way to start getting them highly engaged, just the social aspect and all of that discourse starts occurring. Um, so, so you're saying not only randomize, but let's have them get up and move yeah, to work instead yeah. of sitting there. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that he said that the seating when they're sitting, yeah. that they do become more anonymous. Mm -hmm and passive. Sure, I could see certain kids being able to hide. Yeah. Um, but so if we start making them stand up to work, yeah. they I, stand out. <laughs> and, I like, I like <laughs> and I like this idea of like getting them to those vertical surfaces, the whiteboards, the large whiteboards or something. And he mentions like, they'll try anything and everything on those whiteboards because if it's wrong, they can just erase it. And oh, yeah, I, yeah. Because I used to do chart paper in my classroom. I put mm -hmm. up chart paper and want students to write stuff on chart paper. But now that I think about it, once you get out your markers or whatever, and you start writing on the chart paper, you can't erase it. So I could see kids sometimes even hesitant to put anything down because it's got to be perfect or they can't make a mistake because you can't erase it. But with these whiteboards, they can. And that makes sense because he said in here that actually if you use a whiteboard, they get to work faster and 20 seconds might not sound like a lot but if you are an educator 20 yeah. seconds can be the world so they actually start working faster that's great but they work longer they they become more engaged again because they're able to take their ideas and you and, can feel that energy around the room you've got that group over there you see them working and so i think all of this is just kind of contagious they see the work of their peers different groups they're probably even able to like maybe chat with the other groups and gives them ideas the ideas thing, right? I so like if you're that. getting stuck, you don't have to raise your hand yeah. and say, teacher. Or hide anonymously and, yeah. not, and not even raise your hand. Yeah, you get to look over and go, oh, look at look at David's group over there. Yeah. Let's try that. So I could see this, if this is set up correctly, that this could be really powerful. So as students are working in these groups, teach it's easier for the teacher to just kind of see how everybody's progressing right mm -hmm. and they can bounce around the room and obviously questions are still going to arise from the students as they're working on these tasks right and so it's still our job once again though don't provide them with too many hints and solutions we, we still because we're not trying to get to the answer quickly what we're trying to do is find out what's tough about this problem and so we could ask really great questions to encourage them to sort it out on their own before mm -hmm. seeking out too much help, right? What what makes this task so hard? What have you tried? And the groups are all sharing with, it, with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And I could see how that could lead to us just becoming, you know, problem solvers. Exactly. Exactly. And 
one thing I will say that that is hard, right? So as a teacher, we want to guide them here, do this, do this, yeah. do this. And so it does take a little restraint on our end to answer our the right questions. And yeah. I, one of the strategies that I use for myself is answer a question with the question. Mm -hmm. So like you I've said, well, this. what is making this well, hard? Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Is there somebody else in the classroom that is doing that? Mm -hmm. So when it's just one group, see if they can go be um, little spies and, and I check do this out at other the university groups. with the, the, the practicum students. When I give them a task, when we're all done, they want to, they just want to know, did they get the answer right? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you think? And they, they hate that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But eventually they'll know you're not going to give them yeah. the answer. And that's really a big key there. Remember at the beginning, I said, kids will sit there and just wait yep. and wait you out. Well, if you have the, the stronger stamina of waiting them out, yeah. they know you're not going to just give it to them. And so ultimately we're developing like this, this perseverance because it has to be developed. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it has to be modeled and, and, and it takes time for that to happen. And so I think it's a, such a great strategy to once again, like just allow students to, to work hard on these tasks, guide them through without giving them too much information. And in those groups, you know, persevere through those, those challenges. Yeah. And then Peter and Andrew also talk about evaluate what you value. So that also has to come from you. If all you are looking for is the right answer yeah. or, and I don't even want to say just the right answer because I was big no, on I show your work, show I, your work. Yeah, I get it. But if that's all you're saying is show your work and um, give me the right answer, mm -hmm. then that's all they're going to value. I think this, if, if done correctly and like assessed correctly, we're also focusing more on the process of learning, mm -hmm. not just like you said, the product or the answer to the, to the task, but the process the, throughout that task, developing that, monitoring that, evaluating that, having conversations about that. And, and I really liked, so he gave these ideas and I was thinking, I'm going to share with them real quick, but I was thinking, what if this was a rubric? So how do we get them from, especially in middle school when all they want is grades? So what if we created this rubric that is showing all the things that we value, right? So like number one is the work that they're producing. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, they are going to be evaluated on the work that they produced. Yeah. But then another one is how well did they persevere and make an effort to um, in response to that challenge. Yeah, they're consistently quick to give up or, or quit. Yeah. Yeah. So this rubric and this rubric could be a self rubric too. I was just thinking that. Yeah. For the students. Another thing maybe to put on that is how well do they set individual goals mm -hmm. and monitor their progress on achieving them? Which, you know, the big education word right now is success criteria, success criteria. So I'm monitoring how am I achieving that goal? And then finally, how well they share information and resources with the group members to help solve that yes. problem. So showing there's so many faceted parts to being a problem solver yeah. than just answer the question and show me your work. I love this. These, these thinking classrooms definitely focus on developing lifelong problem solvers. Yeah. And so as we're, we're ending here, I was thinking Andrew and Peter really gave us some great ideas mm -hmm. and not only ideas, but the action steps behind those ideas. 
to create these thinking classrooms. I would love to watch some of these. I don't get to see it a lot in elementary classrooms. I've seen it in a few fifth grade classrooms, but I would love to see more of these. Me too, me too. So I'm real excited to hear if any of our listeners um, have tried out some of these or are willing to try out and then share. Invite us in, I'd love to come observe. Absolutely. A thinking classroom. As we wrap up today's conversation, we want to invite you to continue to join us as we learn and grow together through humor and conversations. And remember, wherever you are, math happens. happens.